Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for this Tuesday, February the 2nd. Coming up, we'll discuss a rapid COVID testing pilot project run by the University of Toronto. Plus, Canada on the verge, perhaps, of producing our own vaccine. Plus, we'll go over all the other big COVID headlines. And Apple users, pay attention because you will soon be able to unlock your iPhone while still wearing your face mask. Details coming up on the podcast right now. Well, they started making headlines yesterday. Some of Canada's top companies coming together for a rapid test pilot project. Now, the hope is this will provide a bit of a roadmap of sorts when it comes to maybe reopening workplaces in the uh, coming months, maybe later on in 2021. Joshua Gans is with the Rotman School of Business and joins us now for more on this here on Global News Radio. Joshua, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, these companies they include Air Canada and Suncor, just to name a couple. Just how are they planning on using rapid testing? Uh, they want to use it as a means of regularly screening uh, their uh, workforces as they go into various offices and plants and things like that. Uh, basically, the idea of regular screening is that it can break any tra- chains of transmission and allow workplaces to prevent, you know, uh, outbreaks from occurring and keep open. Yeah. By regular screening, what do we uh, know? What do we mean by this? I mean, how often will a worker need to be tested? Is it every day before they go into the office? No, at the moment, uh, it's uh, twice a week. Uh, that they'll be tested. Uh, That is uh, what our pilots are running on. Uh, If the numbers of uh, cases in the uh, the, uh, area go down, uh, that could fall to once a week. Um, If it goes up by a long way, we might have to uh, increase the frequency. But basically, at the moment, it's twice a week. All right. And for this pilot project, Joshua, how are some of these companies administering the tests? Is this something done on the work site at the workplace? Is this something that the employee is to do at home before they come in? No, no. It's all at the work uh, workplace. Uh, uh, and then currently it's uh, undertaken by healthcare professionals who uh, supervise the, the tests. Uh, they are involving uh, a nasal swab, but not the really long ones, uh, just something else. Uh, within, I guess, what we call picking distance. So uh, it's a lot easier to uh, uh, to go through these screens. Okay, so it's only go go halfway up my brain, not all the way like the other ones no, do it's right not, now. It's not a brain tickler. No, it'll be it'll be uh, uh, a, a low uh, nasal swab, or in some cases, uh, eventually a saliva based test. All right, I have joked, but what is the efficacy of these rapid tests? Is it pretty good? Uh, Yeah, they're very good for the purpose that uh, these uh, workplaces are looking for, which is to identify people who are currently infectious with the uh, coronavirus. Those are people who have uh, basically enough virus in them to be having to come out of their body and infect other people. And these rapid antigen tests are very good at picking that up. And how long until we get the uh, result? I'm just wondering if this is being done on the uh, workplace, at the workplace site. I mean, do employees then, are they sequestered somewhere until the test results come back? Uh, How is that logistically going to work? No, it turns out you don't actually have to do that. Uh, What you do is uh, the results come back in 15 uh, minutes or so. Um, You can allow uh, workers to go and, you know, if they've got a desk that's not in a crowded place or something like that or or a workstation somewhere like that, they can just go and uh, 
uh, about their day. They'll eventually, you know, uh, for, for the vast majority, get a text message or an email sent to them saying you're, it was negative in the clear. If it's, if it's positive, they, they uh, come out and uh, there's further procedures after that. Mention off the top that this pilot project of rapid testing by these companies is thought to provide perhaps maybe some sort of roadmap for other businesses to reopen. Just exactly what sort of roadmap are, are we talking about here? What would this provide? What sort of information uh, to other companies? The goal is to uh, provide a manual for companies to do it themselves. Uh, uh, once they get uh, screens, they can set up a system uh, for their employees, it'll have uh, full instructions of how to do that, what the best practices are to getting the time down to mere minutes, um, just the sequencing uh, of events and also an IT system by which to record and then notify people of uh, issues. All right. If successful, Joshua, could government, do you think, make this a condition of a reopening for businesses right across the province? Well, I wouldn't want to uh, uh, speak on uh, on that. Uh, that's a public health matter, and I, I'm merely an economist. But you know, the hope is that you know between this and other things of getting the numbers down and uh, improving our ability to uh, have uh, uh, interact with other people who have also been screened, that there might be enough comfort for us to be able to uh, uh, keep places open. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of questions regarding not only uh, whether or not uh, the government might mandate this, but if they if this is a requirement of a reopening, uh, who picks up uh, the costs of these uh, rapid tests? Is this something that the companies themselves uh, would be responsible for? Is it a matter of public health? Would tax dollars, the government cover this? Could it be on the individual employees that all of a sudden a condition of employment that you've got to pick up uh, the, the, uh, the price tag for this? Yeah, so hopefully, well, for one, uh, just for the overall costs, we'll hopefully be very low um, of a matter of a couple of dollars per screen per person. Uh, could the government uh, pick this up? Certainly could. It would certainly, uh, there have been studies that show if you do this sort of screening uh, and keep places open, the government more than makes up for the cost of it uh, with um, t additional tax revenue they get from keeping places open. Yeah, just finally, Joshua, do you believe or do you think that maybe that this is something that is going to be required of workers moving forward, maybe for the rest of their uh, working lives? Because as we keep hearing, the pandemic is something that's going to have long-reaching uh, effects. And, uh, you know, who knows uh, what the, the future holds? Uh, perhaps there's a, another variant or another virus out there. Is this just something that uh, is going to become uh, part of employees' day-to-day uh, -day, uh, working lives moving forward, do you think? Um, I don't think, I, I certainly hope it won't be a regular thing for the rest of uh, their lives. I certainly think this is something that we will likely have to do for the next year or so, and in certain sectors, maybe a little bit longer than that. But um, hopefully, uh, you know, we do better with future pandemics and we do better uh, in, in all manner of other things so that this is not something that we have permanently. Uh, but, you know, for the moment, uh, everybody focused on, let's get this, we need it now, let's do it now. All right, Joshua Gans is with the Rotman School of Business. Joshua, appreciate your time with us this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, there's Joshua Gans on some of Canada's top companies coming together for this uh, rapid test pilot uh, project, which, of course, we will be watching with interest. Big announcement earlier today from the federal government. By the end of the year, we here in Canada could be producing 
our own COVID vaccine. Here's the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, a few hours ago. Two companies, Precision Nanosystems and Novavax, are now on track to manufacture vaccines right here in Canada. This is a major step forward to get vaccines made in Canada for Canadians. To begin with, we've signed a memorandum of understanding with Novavax to produce their COVID-19 vaccines at the new NRC Royal Mount facility in Montreal. Pending Health Canada approval, tens of millions of Novavax COVID-19 doses will be made right here at home. All right, let's welcome in Dr. Alon Vaisman, an infectious diseases physician. The doctor joins us here now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto for more on this and some other COVID headlines. Dr. Vaisman, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here as always. Uh, First of all, in your estimation, put this into some sort of context, if you could, just how big is this announcement today? Because I think, you know, the good news is it sounds as if we get some plans to produce a vaccine, which we need. Uh, Bad news is, uh, well, it's not going to be up and running tomorrow. Yeah, that's exactly it, is that um, it's good for the future plan when we think about potentially needing to get patients revaccinated, if that's necessary down the road, that having this plant available to Canadians is going to be very critical because we won't have to depend on shipments from outside to get a vaccine supply. And keeping in mind that the data from the Novavax we think is is so far uh, very good, and uh, while it's waiting approval, we, we do think that it'll be very effective. But of course, the downside is that there's going to be delay in this coming up. So by the end of the year, it looks like that's the estimation for when this plan is going to be available. So hopefully by then we will have most of the Canadians already vaccinated, but at least it provides a supply for potentially future production in the next year. Does it seem a little strange that we got this announcement from the federal government today, considering, and we just heard this in the prime minister's remarks we replayed, that we're still waiting on Health Canada's approval of the Novavax vaccine? The, the fact that we've got plans ready to roll to produce this, and it hasn't even been approved yet. Right. I, I, it's true that it may be, seem a bit odd, but so far the, the preliminary data is reassuring. And also, I think... There's been a lot of criticism about Canada not having sufficient supplies throughout December and January. So as a response, the federal government is being very proactive and securing doses in the future in a much more sustainable way. If we're producing it in the country, it's a lot more sustainable than relying on shipments. So I think it's more about being proactive for the next coming year. And what do we know about this Novavax vaccine? Again, yet to be approved. Results are promising so far. Is this a one or two dose uh, vaccine? Uh, What do we know about it? We know that it's a protein-based vaccine, which is uh, different from what the mRNA vaccines we've been receiving so far through Pfizer and Moderna. So the technology is a little bit different. Uh, We don't know yet about how uh, long the vaccine efficacy, the um, effectiveness lasts. There is some preliminary data suggesting that it's going to be quite good, but uh, there needs to be actual approval for this. So we don't quite know exactly all the details. Um, For example, also we don't know a lot about the side effect profile of the vaccine quite yet. Right. I also wanted to ask you before we uh, leave this uh, headline, Dr. Vaisman, uh, are we seeing really kind of obviously the need for more investment? I mean, is this one of the lessons of the pandemic uh, for our government and for the country uh, as a whole is that we need more investment, not only in science and procuring and developing some of these uh, vaccines, but also the production uh, thereof? I know that uh, there was also some talk in the announcement from the federal government, from the prime minister earlier today, although it's just Montreal for now, they're looking at maybe a couple of other facilities down the road. 
Yeah, I think it, uh, it also speaks to the greater response of the pandemic in Canada about not only about vaccine supply, but also PPE and other vital things, medications, right. all sorts of things that are absolutely essential for a country to respond to a pandemic across the board. We were all kind of held by that uh, reliability on external trip shipments coming in from other parts of the world. So the vaccine supply is just one example of that. And even though we have so many educated people, high rates of university and higher learning, you know, there isn't the translation to actually producing this stuff in-house. So hopefully with all this newfound attention, there'll be more investment in actually having producing these, this, uh, these products in Canada. Joined on the line by infectious diseases physician Dr. Alon Vaisman as we're going over some of the big COVID headlines of the day. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, wanted to ask you about the province, Ontario, confirming our first case of a variant from South Africa with no known link to travel. Just how concerning is that, that fact that uh, it's not linked, uh, it looks like, to travel? In some ways, it's uh, expected, um, just like with the other variants, that at some point you're going to start seeing these variants linked to people who have never traveled. Given that uh, Canada has a large border with the United States, given that things have been quite open with regards to travel over the last few months, it eventually doesn't become a surprise that you're going to have this in this country. And that's just how coronaviruses develop. You know, uh, if we look at coronaviruses in the past, they just start mutating and they create various uh, different uh, variants. And so it becomes, it's just a matter of time before they enter your country, given how interconnected the world is. What is concerning about this specific variant is that it's possible, or we think it's more likely that people are going to be reinfected with COVID when uh, exposed to this variant compared to the others. Yeah, just how dangerous is this variant from South Africa, where it originates uh, from? Is it more transmissible? Uh, do we know uh, how the vaccines work against this? Yeah, that's a great question. So we think that there is going to be more likelihood, uh, a higher likelihood of this variant being transmitted between people. For one, there is a suspicion that the virus can escape the immune system. So in other words, if you are exposed to this virus we, in, um, in studies that have been done on it, it doesn't uh, get neutralized by the antibodies that have been produced by people who have, become, who have been exposed to COVID. So their chances of reinfection goes up, and therefore the chances of transmitting to other people goes up. Furthermore, there is also suspicion uh, in vitro, which means uh, studies done in the laboratory, showing that this variant may not be as well uh, uh, it may not be as well protected against by the vaccine, which means that if you, if you vaccinate a large number of people, you may start seeing cases of COVID among people who have received the vaccine. So that, those are the two reasons why we're concerned about this variant specifically. Are the travel restrictions or measures that uh, have recently been uh, introduced, uh, and I say introduced because they're not yet uh, in place or been enforced, we're hearing it might be uh, Thursday, but, you know, when we look at something like this variant from South Africa and others, I mean, it's already here. So are these restrictions kind of a day late, dollar short, do you think? Right. Um, I think to a certain degree, the restrictions are a little bit of optics from the federal and provincial governments to show that they're being proactive about trying to contain the pandemic. However, there is some benefit in that it will likely slow down the transmission of this virus coming into Canada. So it's not to say that we've gonna, we're going to be able to eliminate it or fully contain it, because it is already here, and we suspect that. But it's more about slowing down. So if the healthcare uh, you know, the hospital's capacity or the healthcare's capacity to look after people is given some time. Hopefully, this variant, which will inevitably spread through the population, causes more cases. Hopefully, we'll have more time to adapt and also we'll have more time to vaccinate more people. So over that, over that time, hopefully, we'll get more people protected and at least slow down the transmission by restricting the people from coming in and out of Canada.
All right, we talk about slowing down or constricting the spread of the virus. Over in uh, the EU, uh, Europe, they announced uh, early this morning a testing blitz of some uh, 80,000 people. And what they're trying to do there is to find every case of the South Africa variant. The uh, health secretary there is saying the emergence of the variant is a stark reminder that the fight against this virus is not over yet. Is that something Canada should be doing, do you think, uh, doctor? Do we need more testing? Should we be conducting uh, a testing blitz similar to what's been announced uh, overseas? So something to distinguish here is whether or not we're testing more people or whether we're using a positive test and looking at whether those people have the variant. And so for the second question, that's certainly been going on in Canada and will likely be rolled out further. So what do I mean by that is lots of people who have tested positive for COVID, are we checking for the variant? And that is going to be more expanded. So they've been doing surveillance on this for quite a while. But in the next few weeks, we're going to see even better surveillance, even more improved surveillance so that we know how many people actually have this variant. We're not sure exactly how that's going to change our management yet uh, in terms of how we change infection control parameters or public health messaging. But it's important to understand how many people have this variant. And yes, certainly that's an important aspect of trying to control the pandemic that, as you said, has already been started in Europe. And just finally, Dr. Vaisman, with these coronavirus variants spreading, talk has turned to, once again, uh, face masks, masking up. And uh, last week we talked about whether you should be uh, doubling, even tripling up your uh, face mask. Now people are wondering whether or not uh, masks are now required or needed outdoors. What's your take on that? Should we be masking up when we're outdoors as well? Currently, there, there still isn't strong data to suggest that you should be masking outdoors So at this time, we haven't seen large outbreaks associated with people uh, transmitting the virus when they're in uh, outdoor spaces. Of course, if you come in very close contact with one another in certain places, like, for example, congregating just outside a store, waiting in line, then certainly wearing a mask makes sense there. But for your routine activities that you do outside, like walking down the street, running down uh, into a park, for example, it's still, the evidence does not suggest at this time that you still need to be wearing a mask at that point. So unless we see strong signs of transmission in those settings, I, I don't think that that'll, that recommendation will change. All right. Dr. Vaisman, really appreciate the time and the information as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Lon Vaisman is an infectious diseases physician. All right. We'll call this maybe one of the smaller annoyances of the pandemic. But you ever have your iPhone out and you're trying to open it up? you got to access uh, something. As a matter of fact, this happens to me uh, every morning when I come in here to uh, work because uh, we've got uh, one of those barcodes. you got to scan with your uh, camera and then you answer the, the questionnaire before uh, you can uh, come into the uh, building. Well, you know, I sit there at the elevator and I'm trying to open up my phone so I can scan the, uh, the Q code or whatever it's called. And, of course, I'm like, why won't my phone open? Right, I have my face mask on. Right? You've had that happen, right? You try to open your iPhone with your face ID while wearing a face mask. It doesn't happen. It's a no-go. However, those days may soon be coming to an end. And with details, here's our tech expert, Adam Oldfield. He joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Adam, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here as always, pal. Okay, uh, before we get to the advancement uh, here from Apple and their announcement, can you kind of maybe just run down how Face ID works? I know it recognizes uh, your your face and opens your phone, but just uh, exactly like, I don't know, is it an algorithm? How does this thing actually work? 
Yeah, it's a biometric reading. So similar to like kind of like your fingerprint, uh, it keeps a recording of your specific biometric uh, information and it stores it on the phone. So it's not going into the cloud. That was one of those uh, uh, misleading uh, informations that if you use your face ID or you use your fingerprint, the cloud is where it's storing it. It's actually stored in the memory of the phone of your biometric impression. So uh, with that face ID, it's used Using, and Apple's, by the way, is quite advanced. Uh, I would say if I have to put it in order, it would be Apple, it would be Samsung, and uh, Android in general, depending if it's LG or otherwise. So Apple is quite leading in regards to the uh, specifics of Face ID. So it's using patterns around your eye, it's using your nose, uh, it's using the, your mouth structure. So uh, with that, it, that's where it needs a good reading of your face uh, to be able to access and open your phone. All right, so hence the reason you can't open your phone with your face mask on right now. But as I mentioned, that uh, looks like it's soon to be a thing of the past. What is Apple announcing? What are they introducing here? Well, one of the things they got rid of was the Touch ID, and that was where, and it was really handy. That was one of those things, uh, in fact, uh, where you put your finger on the, the, the button, and it would automatically open. It was on the iPad. I think they kept that biometric impression on that. But now what they're doing is the Apple Watch, for the low, low price of only $500, you'll be able to have your phone turn on because it will be able to synchronize the biometric information from your watch connected to your phone. Um, again, this is an Apple thing. If you've got an Android watch, uh, it actually is called uh, Trusted Devices, and it works similar to a Bluetooth. If it connects through a Bluetooth, it will then say if my watch is close to my phone, it will automatically unlock if you look at it. So Apple's come up with this new feature that you can use your Apple Watch connected to your phone, and it will allow for the phone to unlock easy, easily uh, using Face ID. However, uh, this is actually a life hack, Jeff. Uh, and uh, when, when I first spoke with your producer, Mary, and we were talking about coming on the segment, there's actually a pretty cool feature in your iPhone. And, uh, and I'll try to describe it, but if you've got a mask and your face ID, when you go to put your face into your impression on your phone, what you do is you take your mask, create an ID in your settings under face ID and password, fold the mask in half, cover your face, and you can create one scan with the mask on, on half your face. Then you set up a second uh, alternative appearance and put the mask on the other side. And what we'll do is you can test it and it will actually read your uh, face impression with your mask. Uh, all you have to do is fold your mask over your face and you'll be able to set that up. Okay, so that's kind of interesting, but does it come maybe with some uh, privacy or hacking concerns here? Because all of a sudden, if my phone is going to open be with uh, somebody's face half covered or masked, could anybody just uh, have a mask on and open my phone? Not necessarily. No, Apple is quite advanced when it comes to that degree. So as much as I know, you and I look so similar, Jeff. In fact, I would ensure your phone would be so confused with me walking up with a mask on. Uh, I mean, how many times in Uncanny has it been they've, they've called you out? I can't begin to tell you how many times people ask if I'm Jeff. No, but... Listen, I can't go to the grocery store and people don't go, Adam Oldfield, what's happening? Exactly, yeah. That, that chaos that you and I go through isn't going to impede on the iPhone when when it comes to face ID, <laughs> it's actually quite robust when it comes to uh, understanding our facial features. Similar are quite different when it comes to the biometric reading. 
All right. So also, as you just mentioned, if you've paired your uh, iPhone with your Apple Watch, it will open up. And that kind of makes sense to me because, uh, as you know, I'm a fairly new Apple Watch user as of uh, late uh, last year. And every time I put my watch on, I've got to put my passcode in to uh, activate it and use it. So if I've already done that and it's paired to my phone and they're in proximity, wouldn't it just uh, make sense that my phone should be able to open? It should, yes, absolutely. But again, this is where you want your, if you've got a higher security on your phone that requires your biometric facial impression to be able to open it, uh, it's, it's a little more advanced than what you were describing where your watch, if it syncs with your phone, will now keep it unlocked. This is actually a step up for security, which you should have. You should have that feature enabled on your phone uh, because, you know, it, you might put your phone down, turn your back, uh, someone might be able to grab your phone, have it unlocked and be able to access the information on it. So I really encourage anyone that if you, and I know a lot of people do not actually put their biometric information. They still use a number code if, they, if they're able to. Uh, you know, with iPhone, they're, they're trying, and Apple got a little ahead of itself. And, you know, where they like to be a leader in getting rid of technology, you know, like the headphone jack as an example, uh, this is one of those things where they probably got so, so ahead of themselves in technology they forgot about the face mask due to COVID and other, otherwise. Uh, so one of the comments that they're bringing up in the new iOS is there's going to be advanced features for uh, creating better uh, information with opening your phone, whether it's with the watch or whether they're going to increase the technology with the face ID uh, and some of the other elements of the, again, the, the fingerprint scan touch ID is coming back to the iPhone and the new models coming out. Yeah, I'm really surprised they got rid of that. I know they I guess they kind of had to because they got rid of the home button, but that seemed to me to be the uh, easiest and the most foolproof is your fingerprint. Yeah, the fingerprint is actually a feature that's on, it's a, ta it's a technology that's actually patented by Samsung. Um, and I don't know the rules of who's negotiating with who on that, uh, Jeff, but I know that with Samsung, the Touch ID is under the screen of the, of the, uh, of, of the device, so you could just touch the screen anywhere. Um, and in fact, uh, Apple is probably going to incorporate that, and it's not a proprietary patent, as they share many different ideas in cross-platforms, but that's going to be one that they'll probably incorporate as one of Samsung's key, uh, fingerprint uh, on the actual device itself. Anywhere you would touch would be able to monitor or allow you into the device. All right. In the meantime, to open your iPhone with your face mask on, is this uh, something uh, like an upgrade I need to download that Apple users are going to have to download? No, no, absolutely not. It's actually just in the settings, and it's it's just an option with your uh, under Face ID where you would register your biometric info, and it's it's actually an, it's called alternative appearance, and so uh, it's a it's a step that you can set up to give you I don't know if you like to use wacky faces or scrunch up your face when you try to use your Face ID, but think of it as an alternative uh, appearance, and just take your mask, fold it in half, scan your face, put it as a register fold the mask on the other side, do the same thing, and it should give you access or test it. It's not uh, Apple isn't claiming this is a sole solution to the problem, but it might work for you if you're thinking of trying to get yourself to register yourself with a mask on your face. All right. Interesting stuff. Appreciate it as always. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Jeff. Have a great afternoon. You as well. Our tech expert, Adam Oldfield.